Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Catholic Chat. Joining me today are a few of our fantastic writers. We'll just go around. Uh, my name is Will Detridge. I'm the executive director of Clarifying Catholicism. Um, just graduated from the Catholic University of America. Uh, John, go ahead. I'm Jonathan Stadola. I go to school in St. Louis University, and uh, I just started writing for Clarifying this past year. Great. Uh, Nick? Hi, uh, Nick Jones. I started writing for Clarifying uh, last summer. I'm going to be a senior at the University of Rhode Island. And then Zach, I suppose, yeah. Hey, uh, I'm Zach. I just graduated from the University of Alabama. Uh, I started writing for Clarifying um, earlier this spring, and I just became director of religious uh, faith experiences. Yeah, that's right. We're happy to have you on board for that. That's kind of cool. Oh, you know, we, we got, you know, one guy in the West Coast. I'm in Portland, Oregon right now. You know, dude on the East Coast, uh, down South. And I mean, like uh, St. Louis is probably Midwest-ish. I'll count it like that, whatever. Uh, so we got some pretty good representation going for us right there. But uh, today's uh, topic is going to be a very uh, interesting one for sure. And it's addressing... Um, a lot of the uh, pro-life movement as far as can a Catholic vote for a politician who is pro-choice? Or what are the circumstances in which voting for a pro-choice candidate might be acceptable? Uh, as election season approaches, there's so many questions that Catholics you know, ask each other and ask themselves and look to the bishops and theologians for guidance on. And there's many parts of the country where, in fact, you run into that interesting situation in uh, Pacific Northwest where both candidates are probably inevitably going to, or, or the dominant candidates are probably going to lean pro-choice like that. But it really echoes a deeper theological question. When you're presented with a couple different evils, how do you really discern between them? And how can you really understand uh, which one might be worse than the other. So I think I'll just start things off by asking, can any of you guys you know, ever envision a situation where you would consider voting for someone who's uh, pro-choice? All right, Zach, go for it, dude. Just go ahead and jump in anytime. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm actually kind of doing it right now. Um, because first off, I just want to say I am very staunchly pro-life. Um, however, um, a large reason why I can see myself voting for a pro-choice candidate, um, there's kind of two main reasons. One is along the lines of what's known as the seamless garment theory, where, you know, just for kind of layman's terms, that's essentially where you get the whole womb-to-tomb pro-life belief that a lot of Catholics uh, proclaim. It comes from the seamless garment theory, where when it comes to issues that regard life, one isn't necessarily more important than the other. They're all connected. And so with that, you know, we recognize, okay, there's, there are certain evils, but all those life issues are interconnected. So even though I may be voting for a anti-abortion pro-life candidate, I'm still, that same candidate is likely one who supports the death penalty, who supports, um, who supports, you know, uh, lackluster immigration policies, like that. Yeah. you know, and, and further along those lines, you know, it is our Catholic right 
to maintain our conscience and freedom of judgment. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas even says that is more important than anything else in our faith, is that we maintain our right to freely think and discern the morality of our decisions in our, what he calls kind of, you know, safety of our relationship of us as the individual and Jesus Christ um, and God the Savior. So for those reasons, you know, in, in my, you know, discernment, it is up to me and God to discern what is morally right and what, and then from that point, fight, you know, that can and say, okay, I disagree with you on abortion, but I can work with you on all these other things. So while I'm working with you on all these other things, why don't you give me something and, and you know, kind of learn your, your, your mistakes and your thinking regarding abortion? That's a fantastic point. Does anyone have a response or an immediate reaction to uh, that notion, the seamless garment like that? Oh. Yeah, I, I got a couple, um, a couple of thoughts. First is, um, even as the name seamless garment, um, that was a very novel thing that was introduced around, you know, mid 20th century by a lot of prominent theologians or, you know, churchmen and stuff. That's always been Catholic teaching, right? You know, womb to tomb has always been the thing. Um, and I think it's just very sneaky. There's a, a very pernicious edge to a lot of the people who peddle the seamless garment by emphasizing other issues over abortion. And I think we need to be clear and define some terms of what we're actually talking about here, right? The death penalty, modern, contemporary, contentious issues about it aside, has been pretty perpetually accepted as permissible in certain situations, good even in some situations, depending on the theologian. Abortion is always a straight-up murder of a baby. Like, I really, I think that needs to be the, the, the basis that we're working on here. Um, so, like, yeah, there are human, other human life issues, but this is like, and in theory, that's a great theory, but like, in practice, when there's such a grave evil being happened, like, that's just, it's a cooperation in a gravely immoral act which if we do, again, with free consent to that act and full knowledge of it would be a mortal sin for us. So that's my first, I and mean, that's kind of what I'll be peddling the whole time if we keep this up. But that's my first thought, is that these aren't equal issues. Catholics are free to think closed border, open borders. Catholics are free to think gun control or, you know, more restriction. But you're never free to think it's okay to take a human life. And the cooperation in that act is what the contentious or problematic thing here is. But. Well, thanks, Nick. Uh, John, uh, Jonathan, did you uh, have something that you were going to um, add in? Yeah. So um, when you like look up pro-life or talk to anyone on the street, Catholic, Christian, atheist, doesn't matter. They immediately jump to abortion as like the only issue that comes up when you're speaking about pro-life. Um, when candidates typically talk about pro-life, it's with regard to abortion. Um, the seamless garment theorem, you know, it, it has to be, I just want to bring the, the attention that there are so many other issues that have to be encompassed in that whole womb to tomb. Granted, if we have an abortion, it doesn't necessarily other um, human rights things don't necessarily matter because that child never got the chance to experience all of that. Um, but you can also flip around what Nick said using the seamless garment theorem to like mask abortion. Um, a lot of people I think use abortion to like, that's such a big issue. Then they mask all these other ones and don't worry about, you know, 
human rights and a lot of stuff that's going on in our country now is human rights, which does fall within pro-life. Um, in my personal opinion, I believe the church's teaching on pro-life is human dignity from, you know, womb to tomb, just like we were saying. And that's that seamless garment that Zach brought up. Um, that pro-life doesn't just to, um, encompass abortion and a child's rights, but also the death penalty, homelessness, you know, gun control, the environment. Uh, there's so many things that we need to take in consideration. And a lot of times, speaking politically, um, people hear pro-choice, pro-life, and they just immediately jump to abortion, and that's the end of it. There's no consideration of these countless other um, issues. I think those are uh, interesting points. The now, I definitely sympathize uh, with Nick's point about issues that we could run into with the seamless garment. Uh, you know, I, I can't think of how many times uh, people, especially on the political left, have thrown the whole pro-life uh, womb to tomb. Uh, in people's faces, basically saying, "Oh well, so you're you're pro-life in terms of anti-abortion, but you're not pro-open uh, borders. Oh, so you're pro-life in you know when it comes out of the tomb, but you're not in this other situation that has like nothing to do with uh, abortion per se." So I can understand the criticism that it could possibly detract from the debate around uh, abortion in, in particular. That this is you know that there's this particular type of evil that abortion is associated with that um you know while everything is traced back to human dignity it's um you know very easy to just kind of distract uh, from the conversation and take it somewhere else by saying oh well you know you, you can't be pro-life really unless you know you're for a bunch of uh, this other stuff which doesn't seem as clean cut as respecting the dignity of a baby having life in this world. So I can definitely understand that. But on the other hand, you know, Jonathan, I, I think that you're totally right that it, it would be very wrong of us to only respect the dignity of human life in some situations and in others kind of more or less almost forget about it. But I think one of the issues that uh, Zach mentioned that um, and Nick, briefly uh, responded to was the issue of conscience and how much that should shape our decisions. And the Catholic Church's history with conscience has been very interesting, to say the least. Uh, there have actually been some popes that wrote against the idea of conscience, at least in its modern term. It, it stems from a lot of Kantian deontology and philosophy that was actually rejected by a lot of theologians. Uh, at least our modern interpretation of what conscience means. So th that's a bit of a sticky question, right? Like how, how far does my conscience go in, in terms of what I can do and what I want to do before we run into some issues there? Because there are some people out there who, if it were up to them, would basically just use and abuse everything in this world and they wouldn't have a problem with it at all. So... Um, that's a little bit of a broader issue, but con concerning issues like abortion, how do you guys think we should approach those? If I can jump in there. Uh, yeah, go ahead. So priest who's, uh, you know, tweets and blog and stuff I read, you know, we always hear that primacy of conscience is a very, is a very, very Catholic thing. You know, like, talk to your confessor, talk to, you know, God and make a decision on private, you know, 
issues like discernment and any other type of, you know, big life choices or like, sure, from a sea of conscience, you know, freedom, love, all that is derived from our ability to be free and to reason and things like that. But there's the qualifiers, primacy of a well-formed conscience, right? That's, that's the kicker. Formed not by our own perception of the truth, um, not by our own um, modern idea of like how I encounter the world as how the truth is rather than like the truth should inform my encounter with the world. So the primacy of a well-formed conscience, sure. And I think it becomes a muddier issue. I don't want to muddy the waters too much. People will get to this, but primacy of conscience definitely comes in when you see I am pro-abortion, I am pro-abortion, and now how does other how do these people stack up on the other important human life issues? But I think when there's an issue that's so gravely, you know, grave in and of itself, intrinsically evil, and there's no way that our conscience can be properly well-formed and think that you can support that, unless, of course, the only option is to vote or not, you know, is to vote for it. But then you could also always not vote. But yeah, that's my response to that. I can jump in um, on that. Uh, I, I totally agree with the primacy of a well-informed conscience. Because um, that, that is at the basis of what makes a person, if you really boil it down, is we are able to freely think and that freedom of thought um, is re- to be responsibly used by becoming well-informed, which, you know, well-informed means, you know, close to God and thereby close to other people on earth. Um, that's, like you said, a, an issue for another time. But some interesting things have been said, you know, a lot of people think that the abortion issue is very clear-cut and has always been taught clear-cut in the Catholic Church, when in fact that is not true. Um, f- you know, for instance, this whole issue of grave matter, um, yes, you're right. You know, something as intrinsically evil, you know, should be taking, taken, you know, very seriously and very carefully. However, according to the Church's own words, here are some other things that are considered intrinsically evil. Adultery, blasphemy, contraception, divorce, extreme anger, fornication, incest, lying, masturbation, missing mass, perjury, taking the Lord's name in vain, unjust prices, cheating and unfair wages. You know, so by this logic, we can't vote for anybody. We can't do anything. No one can do anything because all of those are intrinsically evil. So that knocks out every single candidate for any (laughs) single political office, no matter what form of government— and don't even consider anarchy because that just allows all of that. So the, the whole logic that the USCCB has portrayed that abortion is so clear-cut because it's intrinsic evil is wrong on that format. Further, it's only been the teaching for about 50 years in a response to Roe v. Wade. But going even further than that in church history, you want to know the real kicker that I learned? There were some saints, some saints who had miracles attributed to them that were abortions. There were abortions in the Catholic Church that were considered miracles by not, you know, minor saints, major saints, such as St. Bridget in Ireland. She had an abortion considered as a miracle because while abortion is an intrinsic evil because it is taking another life, the debate over regarding abortion in the church has not been clear on when human life begins. And we see that as a parallel in our current politics today because there has not been a single stability on when human life begins in the human church, nor on earthly science. So yes, abortion is intrinsically evil, but when does human life begin? 
Yeah, that's that's actually I'll just jump in because I've done a lot of research on that topic to verify that uh, the issue has been when exactly it does begin. There's some Old Testament passages, I believe, too, where there were some uh, miracle. I think there were like Old Testament laws where, you know, if a woman conceived in a certain way, you know, she would be cursed and, uh, uh, you know, her, her womb would like wither or something like that. But yeah, I believe Aquinas himself said that uh, insolment didn't occur until 40 days for men, 80 days for women. Go figure. Uh, though a lot of people in his defense will attribute that just because we didn't really understand how development worked. And uh, as we learned more about biology and the fact that there is something incredibly, extraordinarily unique about the moment of conception as the basis of uh, human life developing, that's when the church really latched onto the idea that from the moment of conception, because the science didn't really seem to indicate that it happened any other way. So I, I, I understand where you're coming from there. And, and the, uh, the miracles, uh, you know, do seem to be pretty uh, uh, tricky like that for sure. Um, and it definitely involves a lot of nuance, but a lot of it, does involve a lack of understanding of how uh, pregnancy actually works biologically. Nick and Jonathan, did you guys want to jump in on that point at all? Um, I just want to jump in. That's an interesting point that Zach brought up with all those other evils um, and how we can now no longer vote for any candidate uh, consciously, um, which is just pretty interesting. Um, I don't know. I mean, going back to our very original question, can a Catholic who is pro-life vote for a pro-choice candidate without that, you know, being a sin on their own? Um, I don't know. I have to say, like, within the terms of consciousness, I've got to, like, if they're a better candidate and better respect, you know, the human dignity of life and these other issues, whether they support, you know, however many of those intrinsic evils or not, I would like to think that it is within my own conscience that I will be actively trying to prevent those evils from happening in my community and the surrounding area. Um, so while I'm voting for, um, and this could be a question for you guys to maybe answer, is voting for a candidate like that consciously a sin on one's part, on the voters' part? Um, I would like to say no if that person is actively working to um, you know, prevent those things from happening, say abortion or those other evils. Is anyone here a monarchist or an integralist of any sorts? Because uh, I guess that's one <laughs> that's one way to solve it, just do away with democracy to begin with. Uh, Nick, you had your, uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead, dude. Yeah, a couple points. Um, yeah, I'm going to try and I'll get back to uh, Jonathan, your point about your final thing that you were just saying there. But I want to start by saying, um, a word on grave matter. Um, so there's plenty of things that are grave matter, like you said, a bunch of stuff, a lot of stuff. Um, but there's also a hierarchy to the gravity of grave matter. Um, so I heard a very interesting homily once by a priest, and he pointed out, look at the Ten Commandments. What's the first one? Or the first three about God. The next one's about your parents. Then it's about the rest of your neighbors. So like, there's a hierarchy in here. And also when we say, I've sinned in my thoughts, I've sinned in my words, I've sinned in my deeds. Deeds are the worst because they affect other people. Words can affect other people less, and then thoughts are just ourselves. So there's clearly, like, a hierarchy of gravity here. So um, I don't think that it's necessarily um, 
totally genuine to say that yes they're you know we can't do anything because we're always committing evil well yes i mean we're always committing constantly committing venial sin um but we can also very easily avoid it but my point is to get back on track that like the taking of an innocent human life is clearly more grave than an occasion for wrath what i mean is that if those are both committed mortally those would both be you know hell we'll say if you die with it but the temporal punishment if you were to repent from it would be very different so you confess the mortal sin of wrath versus you confess the mortal sin of abortion or murder, what the priest is going to give you as a penance and the still atonement that you have to do either here on earth or in purgatory would be very, very, very different. Another point to the gravity of those things is that it's very easy to commit those sins without full consent to the act. Yeah. So someone cuts me off and I you know, swear and curse them and commit the sin of wrath, but I didn't think of it consciously. So that's not, that's venial because it doesn't have the third of full consent, even though I know that it's wrong and I choose to do it. I didn't fully choose to do it. Um, so that's that point. Again, the issue of murder or abortion, it's very rare that you're going to commit an abortion. Again, assuming someone isn't invincibly ignorant or ignorant to some degree, those people who are supporting it very often know what they're doing. And especially the ones who are very much, you know, uh, favoring it in lobbying it or anything like that, those people know, so they have the full knowledge. So, Two points is the gravity of the act itself um, and the conditions that are necessary for it to be a mortal sin versus just a venial sin. And thirdly, I want to talk to the idea of, I don't think we fleshed it out enough yet, this idea of actually what cooperating in someone else's sin is. So there's a lot of different ways traditionally we conceive of this. You could commit, you could be co-op, uh, someone, you could cooperate in someone else's sin by flattering the person. You could cooperate in the person's sin by telling them to do it, by forcing them to do it by not saying don't do that. So in the issue of abortion, um, you're cooperating. Actually, let me back up. There's different ways. You could be um, a material cooperator in someone else's sin, which means you have a very, like, you have a removed sort of way that you're doing it. Or you could be a formal cooperator in somebody's sin. So you just went and robbed a bank and killed them. People, I'm your getaway driver. I'm clearly cooperating in your sin of murder and of robbery versus just like, I don't know. I saw you in a bank walking in with your gun and I just turned and walked the other way instead of trying to t- tell somebody about that. So I have a chart. I don't want to read the whole chart, but I found this very helpful chart about the way that people, it's very systematic uh, based, <laughs> like how people are. I know, Will, you're a theologian. You love that. Um, was it was it made by a Dominican or a Thomist? It was from they the like... Archdiocese of Philadelphia. Of all, places. all right. And they have a chart. Random, but, all right. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> very helpful. Um, so my point is, you got to. I think the, the salient issue is here is to what extent is voting for a pro-choice candidate when there are other options? Is that formal? Is it material? Is it more proximate, closer to the actor, more distant, more removed? So there's more issues at play here. But yeah, that's some responses to things that have been said. If I may, before you go on to uh, John's point, um, it's very easy to make that comparison of you know the certain gravities being more grave than others when you're comparing uh, abortion to wrath. Um, there are other grave sins that don't involve another person and, or, or don't involve just self and involve another person, such, such as adultery, wages, divorce, you know, fornication, incest, masturbation, you know, pornography. So when you're making that, so that comparison of, oh, okay, this is more grave than this grave sin is really not accurate and not true by the defense that you just gave. And yes, there is a separation between sin. However, 
that separation is between venial and mortal. There is really nothing saying this person's mortal sin is more mortal than this person's sin, or this person's venial sin is more venial than another's, because as long as it meets the three classifications of a mortal sin, it's a mortal sin. And further, you know, the only person who truly knows the mortality and veniality of sin is God, because one person's mortal sin yeah. could be another person's venial sin and vice versa, because it is dependent upon the situations and circumstances of that individual's life and the situation around them. So pulling in the gravity and the mortality and veniality of sin really just makes it even muddier and doesn't actually defend your point. Further, you know, when it comes to, you know, the, the, the conscientiousness, if you will, of therefore supporting that person and how much is my sin, you know, abetting their sin, by the same points I just gave, you know, I can't vote for Pete Buttigieg because he's gay, therefore. I can't vote for Donald Trump because he's an adulterer, lying, you know, whatever you want to say, perjurer, anything, you name it, he, you know, he probably did it. Joe Biden, liar, all these different things. So it, I return to my point that by following that logic of gravity and mortality of sin, we cannot vote for anybody. We ourselves cannot run for office. I mean, might as well just burn in Dante's Inferno because that's really where that argument takes us. All right. <laughs> um, I'll respond. Yeah, go, yeah, go for okay. it, dude. <laughs> okay. I yeah, I appreciate that. I'll do something different than wrath. That was just the first one that came to my mind. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that murder is wrong. Everybody knows that adultery is wrong. There's plenty of these things that everybody knows. So I chose one like wrath. But again, you know, masturbation. People can get addicted to that. Various sins. But like, there is a clear. Again, I want to maybe get into the theology of of mortal. And sure, no one knows versus God or us you know mortal sin versus venial sin yeah. i'll grant that but we can have a pretty good idea it's up to the confessor to let you know you know what he thinks but god you know told us about mortal versus venial sin for a reason the church didn't just create that distinction to confuse us like we can discern that you know if i i believe i am so i'm never certain but i'm like 90 percent. so that's that point yeah. next point is right so when i commit any sin a ven when i commit any sin there's potential for eternal punishment, hell, and temporal punishment. So the eternal punishment of a mortal sin is mitigated by sacramental absolution or by some other granting of God's mercy. But the temporal punishment can vary act to act. So that's where we talk about the gravity of mortal sins. Again, the mortal sin of I robbed a little kid of his lemonade stand versus the mortal sin of I flew a plane to the World Trade Center. Very different. So again, I'll, I, even the mortal sin of I killed one man once in a fit of passion or i'm a hitman for the mob that's why we tell the number of our sins in the confessional kind and matter or kind and form kind of number there we go because the, there is sorry, there's a clear i mean again the little kid is an easy example and yes i'll grant that it's a more colorful example but like someone committing one murder versus someone committing you know 50 murders yes they'd both go to hell if they didn't repent um but clearly if they were if they were to repent the guy who's hitman for the mob has a much 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 longer road ahead of him probably a lot longer time in purgatory you know so yes there is very i think i think it is clear traditionally it's what we believe about sin that that is the, the case um and again i think we're dismissing the point a little bit on donald trump being an adulterer in the past again who knows if he's confessed who knows what his actual religion is who knows what yeah. he's doing in private versus what he's doing in public right. that's a really contentious what this guy's yeah. actual religion is but in any case <laughs> um yeah Right. So, so supporting someone who happens to be 
gay even for example like that's not necessarily that's a very very proximate or very very distant cooperation in that person's sin just like supporting a place like i don't know starbucks or netflix or any other thing that might be run christian contrary to christian or catholic morals like is one of my buddies i was talking to him last night he works for amazon you know is he committing a sin by jeff bezos being opposed to a lot of things that catholics are supported to because he worked for jeff bezos's company no he's at the very bottom just stocking a warehouse right like there's a very we do have a hierarchy understood you know laid out by some of those you know manual theologians over the years about the extent to which i'm cooperating in someone else's sin so i do think this requires a little bit more nuance to unpack that um and i think that's response to everything you said no, no I, I like the point about the it, it's a very very massive it, pretty much eternal gray area between venial and moral that only god knows i mean my philosophy is better safe than sorry if there's even an ounce of a potential for it to be immortal sin go and confess it for sure there's a very wide spectrum among theologians about what's considered considered mortal and venial and especially with the uh, rise of a lot of uh, psychology, how the brain works and how it actualizes the, the most extreme position will be, and you know, I've heard this from various philosophers, is that you would never do something if you thought it was the wrong thing to do, that your actions reflect your innermost desires. And that gets into very, very tricky territory for mortal sin, because that means that there's something somewhere up there that truly tells you that what you are doing is the right thing to do. And that's, yeah, uh, it's just tricky. We can't definitively say, all right, I know for a matter of fact with 100% certainty that what you just did there was mortal. I think it's always better safe than sorry to assume that uh, it's a pretty, if there's an ounce, an inkling of a thought that, that it could possibly be mortal, go and confess it. Uh, but, you know, that's the thing is the church is never going to sit you down, hold your hand and say, yeah, all right. You know, yeah, yes, this one you wrote up here. Yeah, that, that, that's mortal. This would be over here. No, it really is about you and your relationship with God and um, depends on a lot of factors that are more complex than people will. And by the way, I'm not endorsing the view where, uh, you know, every single action we do is authorized by our conscience. I, I don't think that would be too simplistic. That would almost be too easy. And quite frankly, that wouldn't make much sense. That that would almost flow right into universalism, which is an interesting subject in itself. Um, but Jonathan, uh, did you, uh, do you have anything to add, you know, as far as anything that stood out to you or what you've heard? Um, I mean, just your point there about um, philosophers saying that in the action we do is in terms of the good, we believe that. Um, then we'd be committing sins all the time and they wouldn't be sins because they wouldn't be bad. And yeah. that's, that's impossible. Um, you know, I think every time I've committed anything in the past, um, with the exception of when I was ignorant, um, it would have been, I had some feeling that what I was doing was wrong, whether that was in the moment or shortly right. after. Um, so I'm not sure I totally agree with that. Um, but I did want to throw out there, um, Nick brought up, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos and his friend working at the very bottom that, you know, that corporate ladder, you know, stocking. Um, I think something we mentioned before bringing this uh, together was the, I personally am pro-life, but my actions are, you know, you can do whatever you want. You know, whatever, I'm going to say whatever I want to get elected. Um, and so 
think that's another issue we need to talk about. Mm. Um, I you know, saying I personally am against abortion, but then passing a law to say fund Planned Parenthood isn't really, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't add up. Um, yeah. And so I think when, you know, with Nick's example, you know, his friend probably personally agrees with those, the Catholic teachings that Bezos is against. Um, and I think working there, uh, he, do, he isn't, you know, say collaborating or justifying what, you know, Bezos is personal and then probably his actions, which is the more important thing there, your actions, not just the words that you're saying. Um, and I think that goes back to our um, voting for someone who maybe is publicly against something that we are for or against and vice versa. Um, and how tricky that is to whether we are supporting them in that grave sin, that evil, or not. Um, and so I think that's when we have to look at the actions of the individual. Um, I think that's, yeah, that, that's very interesting that a couple of you guys, you guys have brought this up where it's like, well, are we actually cooperating with them? What's going on there? Um, you know, especially since World War Two. I mean, I hate to use the Nazis as an example, and I'm not trying to liken uh, Mr. Bezos to any of that by any stretch of the imagination, but the whole argument of, well, I mean, I was just at the bottom of the chain of command. I was doing what everyone else was told to do is a massive philosophical, theological, and ethical problem. Because there, there, I, I think Hannah Arden in particular, she came out swinging against it, saying every single one of those people who were under Hitler going basically like going straight to hell uh, because they didn't stand up against the banality of evil. So there's, there, again, there's a wide spectrum as far as, all right, is working for a corporation that supports Planned Parenthood, uh, is that an ethical thing to do? Or Apple having sweatshops that are working kids to death in some foreign country by working for them, am I aiding them in that? And especially in a globalized environment where God knows what I'm doing and saying here, how that's impacting some poor kid in the other side of the world, it's really, really difficult. But the scary thing is once you're aware, like if you are working for a company and you are somewhere in the chain of command and you do figure out, oh shoot, we got sweatshops in Africa what are you gonna do? Like, I, I think there an awareness, an increasing awareness of the world around us, uh, and particularly the extent of our actions, puts a greater amount of duty and obligation on our shoulders to do something about it. Um, I think it's part of the American uh, liber almost liberal, uh, in the classical sense, conditioning that's kind of taught us to shirk off a lot of that responsibility that otherwise would have been respected and taken on. I mean, I'm, I'm sure all of our parents have worked for corporations in the past that have had, you know, some sketchy dealings here and there. Um, and that's just a reality of American life. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they, uh, that a lot of people, most people in this country, probably 90% have never really sat down and talked about the ethical implications because their obligation was to feed their family. And then it's all about competing obligations, which circles all the way back around to our question about candidates. We have an obligation to vote pro-life, but we also have an obligation to vote for a bunch of other important matters as well. Um, I, being in Oregon, there, uh, the last election, actually, there were 
both the Republican and Democrat were uh, both pro-choice. But one was less pro-choice than the other by far and said they would basically, one said, I want to increase spending to uh, Planned Parenthood and stuff like that. The other said, no, I want to actually start limiting a little bit, but like women have a right to choose. Um, so, so there are situations like that where I do think it opens up the realm of possibility um, to choose which obligations really matter the most and which ones are going to be the most impactful. I don't know how you guys think of that or would respond to that. And no offense to your Amazon friend, Nick. I mean, uh, I, like I said, so many friends and family of mine have worked for big corporations that do all sorts of uh, shady stuff in the background. And I'll be making fun of him for it too. So it's okay. <laughs> Sounds good. I'll, I'll hop in on this. So kind of starting a little bit from the beginning and trying to bring it back into the circle. So the comparison, you know, and bringing up um, Nazism um, and, and the role of kind of the low man on the totem pole and their culpability in committing sin. Um, I think that's kind of different from most other circumstances that we see today because that kind of low man on the totem pole in joining the Hitler Youth or in joining the SS knew exactly what they were doing. And it was not, you know, an individual, it was an entity that was committing those sins. And they joined that entity in full acknowledgement of what was going on. And despite the prosperity that was brought to certain people in Germany that they may have been supporting, that doesn't detract from that entity committing those sins. However, on the flip side in this, the separation becomes, you know, when you have pro-choice people, this is where the nuance starts to come in because there are some people in the pro-choice camp who are truly pro-choice and saying, hey, this decision is between the doctor and the woman. Whereas there are some pro-choice people who are saying, hey, let's just kill the babies. There's too many people on this planet. They're not going to have a good life. Let's just do away. Those are two vastly different sides of the camp of the pro-choice movement. So to that, and, and the reason to bring that up is, the person who is simply saying, I want to leave the decision up to the people who are actually making the decision, they're nothing like that low man on the totem pole in, in, in the Hitler Youth or even you know, your friend who is working for Amazon. They don't have the culpability in that because that's just, as the voter standpoint now saying, I am voting for someone who is allowing this to happen but is not actually committing this sin. Vastly different from saying, hey, you know, I am going to give X amount of money to Planned Parenthood so that we can fund abortions. Vastly different, vastly different. So that's, that's kind of a first nuance I want to bring up. The second to that is, okay, you know, now we're in that realm. We have, for lack of better terms, this is how it's kind of come down to, we have pro-choice Democrat versus quote-unquote pro-life Republican. Okay, we have pro-choice Democrat, let's allow abortions, it's up to the woman and her doctor. We have pro-life Republican who still allows death penalty. You know, okay, we talked about that, let's move down the line. Okay. So abortion between the woman and the doctor. We can make the argument about, uh, about um, death penalty, whether they're culpable or not. Okay, fine. Let's go into the history of those a little bit because those themselves are very nuanced topics because if we look, for, and this is where Roe v. Wade and the history of it kind of comes into more play. So I'll touch on the death penalty first because I don't have the statistics on it off the top of my head, but we all know that a lot of innocent people die. People are on death row for a long time. Like it's not exactly something like that, which is actually pretty high. Honest practice, you know, we can go into the whole racism of it. That's a, that's an issue for another time. So the whole culpability of them being on death row, 
that's kind of a crappy argument in and of itself. So let's go to the main argument here with abortion. So Roe v. Wade, um, you know, mid, mid, early to mid 70s. Um, at that point, you had the USCCB and pretty much the Catholic churches are an overall entity saying, okay, abortion's evil. We can't support this. But do you know how effective the approach has been? I'll save some time. It hasn't been. If anything, it's actually been reversed. Because in 1977, 22% of Americans were uh, acknowledging abortions. In 2019, 25% were acknowledging abortion, having abortions. The rate of Catholic women having abortions is about on par with the average American woman. So the issue here is, first off, the you know, we can debate the merits of abortion and whatnot all day long. I think all four of us and most people are in agreement that abortion is wrong. So we return to the, the issue of can we vote for a pro-choice candidate? And I say yes, because how effective has the pro-life movement really been? It really hasn't been. So how, so really, how important is it? Because all we're doing as a pro-life movement is saying, you can't do that, don't have an abortion, but you're kind of on your own if you have the baby afterwards. That's essentially what the Republican Party has been saying, and much of the pro-life movement has been saying for a long time. T the tide has turned recently with some offering, uh, I think it's what, postnatal, uh, I forgot the word for it, care. And that's good. We need that because if we're going to bring a baby to term and to life, we ought to help them along the way as well, kind of tying back into the seamless garment issue. However, the issue of abortion is very nuanced because we, before Roe v. Wade, we had millions and millions of unsafe abortions occurring. And the entire purpose of Roe v. Wade was basically saying, leave this decision up to the people making the decision. And we can go into the hole where the baby can't make a decision. Beside the point. The purpose was to make it safe, rare. That has not been the case anymore. Partially, yes, because of the money that is raised from abortions and Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood's evil. We know that. That's that every person who's pro-choice does not defend Planned Parenthood. However, if we were really, really considerate about pro-life issues, we would not be attacking the symptom of it. We would be attacking the cause of it. So we would not be saying, okay, let's get rid of abortion. We'd be saying, why are people having abortions? Let's keep them from even seeking that in the first place. Has, so the pro-life movement has not been effective in that regard. And I have plenty more to talk about in that, but I've kind of been going on for a little bit. So I'll, I'll yield my time until you know, maybe later on some of those other points. I, I actually appreciate that uh, critique. Uh, I always say that I love the March for Life. Um, it's a great event. I always enjoy going. But it's kind of disappointing to know that that's kind of the one burst of energy that the entire movement really has, and no one really covers it. Though to push back against a couple of the things you said, because I have seen some stats that actually seem to indicate contrary. I believe the 90s was the pinnacle of support for abortion, and since the 90s, it's actually gone, pro-life uh, sentiments have actually gone up, and among young people as well. So I wouldn't call it totally ineffective, but I do very much appreciate bringing up um, a lot of socioeconomic policy that is crucial. Uh, American society has been largely built on individualism and particularly uh, male-centric individualism. It was expected that the man would take care of the household, but we're not seeing that anymore for a variety of reasons. Now, the, and the only pushback I'll have the, against, you know, the idea that, you know, the government should be giving women more support 
is that if the government gives women more support after they have kids, what incentive does that give the father to stick around and give his support? Because like I said, I think divorce rates are massive. Cohabitation is rampant. Fathers leave their families in, in many, many situations. So, so that I, I understand, but th that is a possible cure. And I do at least partially support further investigation of how the government can take care of uh, single mothers and mothers who um, have kids and the fathers can't support them. But uh, I think there also needs to be a massive social change in the way men treat women. And that's going to be, I mean, that's a whole social movement in itself is uh, how men deal with the obligation of staying with their family and supporting them. Well, that's my point in the first place is instead of targeting, you know, because that's what I was getting as that is the issue itself is the breakdown of the family unit and the yeah. disappointment of, of I'll call it proper gender roles. I know that sounds horrible today, but we, you know, we are biologically ingrained to act certain yeah. ways. Men are more, yeah. men are more protected. That's biologically yeah. proven. Yeah. And that's my point is if, if the pro-life movement were really, if we really cared about ending abortion, we would target the source and say, okay, abortions are happening because, you know, the rampant amount of sex outside of marriage, the rampant amount of, you know, single mother households or even single father households. So if we fix those problems or address those problems, we will thereby inevitably see the decrease of abortions happen organically. Instead of simply saying, no, don't do this, you're on your own, or I might help you, I might not. You may not get enough help, but you might get something. That, that's my entire point of that. Uh, go ahead, Nick. I See, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Catholicism is famous for being, you know, both and, not either or. Right. So I, I think we're pushing a, a, a very false dichotomy here. Yeah. Um, I think it's disingenuous to suggest, no disrespect, Zach, of course, your point, not you. Um, right. I just want to make that clear. Um, I mean, what he's trying right. to say is he hates you, Zach. That's that's obviously what he's trying I think, to say. I think not the only one. Thank you. Will. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyway, um, what I'm trying to say is that there are plenty of I mean, the March for Life causes wave, waves and stuff, but I mean, every place, you know, right to life, Rhode Island, sure, they do a lot of abortions, anti-abortion lobbying and stuff like that, but they're also standing there outside the clinic trying to talk to people, offering things, we'll adopt your baby, here's baby clothes, here's free diapers, here's things like that. Like, like this has always perpetually been a thing. The church founded the idea of modern healthcare. The church has perpetually said, don't do this, and hey, we'll help you out, like, so I, I don't buy that idea that this is the loudest voices. Sure, the ones are going to opportunize on it, and the the march is the most prominent example of it. But I mean, you know, however many thousands of people marching versus just like, you know, old married Catholic couple counseling a young girl who wants to do this. Like it's happening. Like it does happen. Um, and again, I just you can't fix like you can't fix an evil by letting another evil happen. Like. So yes, address the whole issue. But the thing is, the church still does preach about it. Like sexual ethics have always been a thing constantly from the beginning. Abortion has always been a thing that we're opposed to constantly from the beginning. You know, out of wedlock babies, no, bad. All of this stuff has always been like the, the seamless garment, as we call it, has always been what it actually is and authentically and properly emphasized. I think we're not, maybe you see neglected this because there's just such a grave, horrible thing that's just ignored. It's just, it's just a thing, you know, it's the thing that liberated women do is they abort. So our society needs the constant witness of this is wrong. But again, 
the the authentic Catholics aren't you know saying you're going to hell. They're not outside of Planned Parenthood, you know, like condemning those women. They're saying, let me pray with you. Let me help you. Like, I just, I don't think that it's a, a reasonable solution to suggest that we permit the evil to continue happening and are thereby complicit in it rather than calling out the evil, but also offering other situations. It's not an either or. It's definitely a both and. And um, until this thing was so prevalently, you know, made available, there was probably a healthy mix of it. Abortion was considered unthinkable, but now that's not. You got to get back to that square one. So in theory, sure, but in practice, you need that both end, and the church has always perpetually supported the both end. So quickly to that, um, first, prior to Roe v. Wade, roughly half the nation permitted abortion. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, so vastly unavailable as people thought. Um, it was it was permissible. It's just there was not as much need for it because we had a more proper family unit. And that's, that is my entire point with it. And I agree with you that we shouldn't, you know, allow other evils to persist while trying to shut down a certain evil. However, that's exactly what the USCCB is doing by harping on abortion and forgetting everything else. Because that, even if that's not the intention, that is, the re, that is how it's being perceived. And, you know, further, further from that, you know, it is a reality that Catholics are only a percentage of the pro-life movement. So a large portion of the pro-life movement does have protesters outside condemning the women seeking abortions to hell, saying they're evil, all this. We, we see that all the time. And even if it's not Catholics doing it, that doesn't detract that it happens because we are only a portion of the movement. We are not the movement. And even if the church has taught the seamless garment, that's not that has not been made the priority in, in the United States. The USCCB has consciously chosen to make abortion the prominent highlighted issue and to preach that predominantly. And instead of saying, here's everything, all these are evil, let's tackle this. Individual priests may handle it differently, but time and time again, when the USCCB meets, we even saw it just recently, I think it was two years ago when they met, they purposely chose not to include the language of Pope Francis to include other pro-life issues because it would take away from their argument that abortion is a grave evil. And so we are doing no good, really, if we're just sitting here saying abortion is horrible, abortion is horrible, abortion is horrible, while forgetting all these other things that happen once the baby is born. And on top of that, even if the Catholic Church doesn't condone these things, the simple fact is the Republican Party, who is the, the candle bearer and the flag bearer of the pro-life movement, basically does say, let the baby be born and then essentially forget about them. The tide has only changed in recent years because of pushback against it. In, in all fairness, wrong argument or not, the Democrats have been very effective in, in vocalizing, saying pro-choice, leave it up to them, and let's have all these different things available to them to try to prevent it. Some of those issues, such as contraception and whatnot, they're the wrong ways to go about it, but they at least are being vocal about saying, hey, let's try to prevent this organically and address all the issues. The Republican Party and a lot of evangelical Christians, and unfortunately, many lay Catholics and even, you know, uh, clericized Catholics are behind the times in that regard and not vocalizing to a proper degree the sincerity in which they actually, you know, hold these things to be true. That's some good insights. Before Nick jumps in, poor Jonathan. Soaking <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it all in, you know. It's <laughs> a good thing to do. Uh, do you have anything that you've noticed, or do you want to hand it back to Nick? I, you know, your call, dude. Um, I just want to toss like one last thing out there. I guess um, this whole discussion we've been talking about is like on the large scale, um, but like 
what can we do as individuals and what is our responsibility? Um, a lot of times, I don't know, we've been bringing up the family dynamic. So like a father's role, his ultimate role is to get his family to heaven. Like that is his goal. Our goal is to bring those around us to heaven. Um, so what is, I mean, all these issues are around the country, around the world. How do we look at that in our own specific communities? How do we, you know, initiate that pushback that changes the Republican Party to then start taking care of the child after it's been born? How do we, um, you know, go to the Planned Parenthood and pray with the people who are there? How do we have conversations with our neighbors to like switch their viewpoint? How do we vote for candidates who don't necessarily, um, you know, practice the whole pro-life thing? but still want to say that they are pro-life? And then how do we lobby that they, you know, get them to change that opinion? So there needs to be some sort of action coming forth from this, which is always hard because everyone has a different opinion on what like they see as the best route to like end abortion and end this next list of, you know, issues. Um, I think it's just your actions and how you live your life and, Unfortunately, a lot of people aren't doing that. That's why we're having society as a whole promotes sex before marriage and just running rampant with doing whatever you please because there's no implication today. I don't think that, you know, God is real and these choices that you're making matter. Um, so I think we need to do what we can to, you know, as Catholics, as Christians, to emphasize that, you know, this life here on earth isn't, the ultimate goal the ultimate goal is to get to god and we need to bring as many people there along the way by hopefully switching those pro-choice people and the pro-life people to hopefully a perfect ideal seamless garment theorem which respects human dignity of life which is i know a huge thing to ask because there is so much underneath that and we've spent you know almost an hour here talking about um all these various issues and really haven't reached a, you know, a plan to go forward. Um, you know, the church has been around for 2000 years and still doesn't have a plan on this to go forward. Um, so I just think it's, this has been a, like a really interesting conversation. Um, and some really good points have been made that we can be pro-life. We can be, well, we're not pro-choice, but we can be pro-life and still support these other things, maybe not act on them, which we should be doing. It's just a very interesting, um, you know, two sides of the coin thing I think that we have going on. Yeah, no, thanks. Um, before, you know, I think that'll be a perfect question or reflection to close out with. But before that, Nick, you wanted to fit something in addressing uh, Zach's points. Go ahead and then we'll wrap things up and go through uh, Jonathan's point. Yeah, just, um, I think there's, like, and then the false dichotomy of left versus right or Democratic versus Republican. Um, there's also the idea that we can only, which, uh, speak to that, right, there are other parties, always other parties, always other candidates, always other options, right? The way to create political changes to just stop just thinking, stop voting straight ticket or whatever, just stop thinking, oh, my side good, other side bad, whatever the case may be, right? So, Sure, the Republicans have, haven't been pro, have been, haven't been consistently pro-life, so don't vote for them. Find another pro-life candidate to vote for. 
but don't actively support a moral evil, which is, again, the issue that we cannot escape with what this conversation that we're having is that voting for a pro-choice candidate is very clearly, when there are other options, according to Catholic theology, a grave matter. If committed with full consent and full knowledge, would be a mortal sin, as best as we can tell here on earth. That's like the teaching that's consistent across any theologian, any manualist, whomever. Second, I don't buy that the bishops have been harder on pro-life on any other issue because how often do we hear climate or immigration or racism, especially now, not unnecessarily, but I do think it's one of the things that they think people take for granted. And again, if we had a society where people knew that this was an evil thing, but when they don't know that's an evil thing, you have an obligation to speak to the, to speak out against the worst evil that's happening every day, which it's a greater poverty that a kid never gets a chance at life and they go hungry. That's the reality. That a kid gets murdered or sucked or dissolved or whatever from their womb is a, in the mother's womb is a worse poverty than the fact that they might grow up hungry or fall into substance abuse or anything like that. Because the dignity of human life is such that taking it is taking a human life or thwarting it from existing in the first place is worse than anything that could happen to it here and now. Um, so yeah, those are some points. Yeah, um, you know I'm gonna I'll wrap things up. Uh, well, I'll let Zach have the final, you know, say and everything, especially with Jonathan's um, points, but going along those lines, you know, like, like I said, I, I, I have in the past voted for uh, pro-choice candidates personally. Again, the context was that both options on the ballot were indeed pro-choice, but one was far less. And, you know, I, I think we love to think of things in the world as black and white, definitively pro-life, definitively pro-choice, when in reality, how uh, candidates are going to behave in office are going to be very different than what they say, how many presidents have said, and we're going to completely stop Planned Parenthood. I, I don't think any of them are purely pro-life in that sense, but a lot of them have taken steps. So to me, a candidate who's pro-choice but far less pro-choice than the other seems to more logically warrant attention um, like that. And to Jonathan's point, as far as what we can do, I think the most important thing to remember is that our nation in particular has fallen victim to apathy. I don't think people care about the issue as much as, like there's the diehard pro-life, diehard pro-choice, people in between really just don't care very much. Um, you know, I, I love existentialism. And the basis for all authentic human being is care. Descartes would say, I think, therefore I am. Someone like Heidegger or Sartre would say, I care, therefore I am. And a care is a concern for our being, a concern for the world around us that I think has really been lost. I think that the media and a lot of people out there just wanted us to turn off our brains because that just makes everything easier when the really authentic way to be free is to care about these issues and be compelled to think about them. So there's many ways uh, we can do it. Um, I, I tend to agree that, you know, most people who don't care about the issue will just walk by a protest of any sort thinking, yeah, all right, they're just doing their own thing. It's really finding innovative ways to reach out to people through medias and narratives that they're more familiar with. We have to remember that all of Christ's eternal truths, well, most of them were reduced to parables. I think it's time for Catholics to get creative or pro-life people in general to get creative, 
to really inspire people to care about the issue. And before that happens, or unless that happens, I don't think much tangible change will happen. I think it's important to still lobby and vote, definitely, 100%. But we're not going to grow the movement unless we can convince other people that this is something worth even considering. So we need a, we need a lot of uh, change in how we evangelize there, I think. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, for my closing remarks, I'll kind of put it this way. So what I'm going to be doing the 2020 election is looking at, you know, obviously Democratic, you know, presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden, presumptive uh, Republican nominee Donald Trump, you know, and presumptive, you know, major third party nominee Joe Jorgensen from the Libertarian Party and looking at their stances on all pro-life issues, you know, meaning abortion, death penalty, uh, workmen's wages, health care, anything that affects a person's life, looking at their stances on it, looking at, you know, their track record, you know, either in office at whatever level and their track record during campaigns, in addition to the issues that matter to me personally, you know, being education and infrastructure and basically seeing, okay, where do I agree with them? Where do I disagree with them? And my decision on who I vote for at that, at the presidential level is essentially, you know, who, you know, can I consciously and morally agree with on majority of pro-life issues and at the same time effectively lobby, you know, to you know, join me on the issues we disagree on. So in the case of Joe Biden, I, let's say I agree with him on most of his, you know, issues regarding life after abortion. Can I effectively lobby him and his administration to find a middle ground on an abortion? That would be the determining factor for me and who I vote for, essentially. Um, similar to what you were saying, Will, on, you know, on, on any other level, the issue of abortion does not matter for someone who's on school board necessarily or county commissioner necessarily. So we, when we're electing people and voting, we need to look at what issues matter to their office. You know, as great of an, as an evil abortion is, why are we, you know, electing, you know, animal catcher based upon their pro-life, you know, uh, beliefs? It, it matters in the grand scheme, yes, but for their office, it doesn't matter. So look at things in proper context. And beyond that, after the vote is where the, most of the work is done. Yeah. We need to lobby the candidates. We can't just vote yeah. and say, deal with it, and whatever happens, happens. That's the apathetic part of the electorate who is lazy enough to begin with. I mean, all offense in that to people because you yeah. get off your butts and do something if you would care so much, not just 3% voter turnout. Come on, people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and really show if you're pro-life. Back your statements up. Support it if you're going to support it. You know, and go to town halls, go to meetings, lobby your representatives to get your voice heard on the issues that actually matter and get something done. And don't just do it individually. You know, get a group of people together at your parish or at your school and, and write collectively. You know, go grassroots. But more importantly, don't just attack the, the band-aids and the casts to the problems. Prevent the breaks and the wounds from happening in the first place and, and address the issues at heart. We have, we're here to change hearts and minds, not just change policy. And until we actually are able to change hearts and minds, we're going to be having the same argument that we've, and, and discussion we've been having for the past 50 years and 150 beyond this. So we need, so is it important to take abortion into consideration and pro-life issues into consideration of voting? Yes. 
But what's more important is getting people to understand not that it is wrong, but why it is wrong and that there are better alternatives to it. Yeah, no, I think that's a pretty good way to cap things off. And, you know, it's a pretty difficult topic to, you know, talk about. So I appreciate all three of you guys jumping in on this. And Zach, especially for a lot of the research you put in with, uh, you know, uh, that perspective as well. Uh, you know, this has been fantastic. And to all those who are watching and listening out there, thank you very much for joining us on another episode of Catholic Chat, the Clarifying Catholicism podcast. Um, what do you think about the issue? Go ahead and let us know in the comments below. But make sure to follow us on YouTube and Spotify. Have a great day. God bless you. Thank you.